Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Raf Arndt, the CEO of The Future Fund. Australia's $200 billion Aussie dollar sovereign wealth fund that his team manages alongside $55 billion Aussie dollars of other sovereign pools of capital. Raf assumed the CEO seat in 2020 after serving as chief investment officer for six years. Our conversation from five years ago about the fund's total portfolio approach 
is replayed in the feed. Our conversation focuses on the significant changes in the Future Fund over the last few years. Raff and his team spent a year analyzing changes in the global economy, demographics, and markets, and concluded the Future Fund needed substantial turnover to prepare for the coming period. We discussed these changes in the external environment and the governance and culture internally required to do something about it. Before we get going, what you just heard is my son Ryan's response to my asking him to create a guitar riff for a new intro for Capital Allocators. We do bring some heavies on the show, and he's definitely got that heavy metal vibe. So I'll leave this one up to you. Next time you're chatting with a friend about Capital Allocators, why not ask what they think about the potential new show intro? We'll take you out with it one more time, and thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Raf Arndt. Raf, great to see you. Hi, Ted. Well, it's actually been five years since you last came on the show. Since then, there have been a couple things that have changed. So you are now the CEO, not the CIO. And there were two pieces that I've seen you put together that sort of was the impetus for this, the 15-year letter of the history of the fund, and then last year's piece on the death of portfolio construction. Maybe we should start with, how do you feel about being CEO? Yeah, what an interesting question and what an interesting time and a lot has changed in the world. I think COVID was a real catalyst for a lot of things. And it just so happened that right in the middle of 2020, I changed jobs and became the CEO. It wasn't something I was really looking to do. I was happy being the chief investment officer and I was quite passionate about that. But what happened was that the role was vacant and there was a market crisis from a future fund perspective, we were turning 15. I had a lot of ideas about things I thought we needed to do to pivot, to double down on. I started talking to the board about that. And eventually someone on the board said, why don't you go for the job? And I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that. So I thought, what could go wrong? So I did. <laughs> and here I am. What were some of those views of what you wanted to do in the role? They sort of fell into two broad buckets. One was internal related issues and the other one was external. So on the external, we'd really been fortunate in that we don't have members or clients, we don't have to do marketing, we're not regulated. And so we thought really deeply, long and hard about the investment world and what was changing. And we'd done some research already around the return of inflation, the end of monetary policy, at least in a traditional sense when interest rates are all zero and what might come next. So when COVID happened and government started to stimulate, we sort of got really interested in whether the world was changing. And I felt like we had to reposition not just the portfolio, but the mindset of the organisation around the world being different now. And that's a big task because when you've got investment professionals that have been doing things for 20 years sometimes or longer, and an organisation that had existed long enough in 15 years at the time that had developed a process and approach and a way of thinking to change it is a big task. And then secondly, the external world was changing and we had to adapt to that. So whether it was the things our staff expected from us, ways of working, societal expectations, 
things around reputation when you're a sovereign wealth fund. I felt like we needed to do an even better job at that than what we had been doing. So lots of interesting things to tackle. Why don't we start with this idea that the external market environment was changing and you needed to adapt? How did you lay out what that meant and how you should change your approach? It was really founded in research we'd been doing for quite a few years and we'd started to talk to the board about just long-term trends, secular cycles and things like that. And then when COVID happened, I am in Melbourne in Australia and unfortunately that was one of the cities that was locked down the most in the world and most of our staff are there too. So that was a big disruption, but also it gave us a lot of time to think in between dealing with market issues because we were stuck in our homes. I was really thoughtful that if this world was changing, driven by a generational change, so people who are, say, under 45 today, millennial and Gen Z, really have a very different lived experience, partly because of how old they were when the financial crisis happened and what sort of jobs they got, what that felt like for them, whether they could afford to buy assets, houses and things like that or not, mostly not. And so they expect different things from their governments. And because of the research we'd done, I noticed that the world had been through these cycles before. And I challenged the team to start thinking about it. Essentially what happened is I ran up Sue, who was then our head of portfolio strategy and said, I think the world's changed. I want you to tear it down to first principles, figure out how it's changed, figure out what we need to do to succeed in that new world and build it back up. You've got a year. And she said, oh, that's an interesting question. I'd love to do that, but I'm too busy with BAU. And I said, oh, BAU's cancelled. So I literally went to the board and said, we're going to stop reporting on a whole lot of stuff because we need to focus on this project. And the board was supportive, even though we're in a market crisis. We recognised that we didn't know what was going to happen in the world. So the next thing we did was a wiki survey across the whole organisation, as in from the receptionist up. And we said, what do you think's changing in the world? What's important? We came up with a bit over 70 ideas and we tried to group them and ultimately came up with the 10 groupings that are set out in the first paper, the new investment order. It always feels like something is changing in the world, especially in markets. Things are tops and bottoms. How do you develop the conviction looking at cycles, looking at these ideas that your team developed that you should make a significant change in a substantial portfolio? I guess it boils down to expressing a form of leadership because you can overanalyze something to death and come up with a million reasons why you'll revert to the mean or our models will tell us something will be. I guess it was a career of reading and thinking and being influenced by different things I'd read that really went to the fact that finance is people's behaviour and whether it's quantitative or not, people program the algorithms and so people change. I was pretty influenced by a book I read back in the 90s called The Fourth Turning. That really went to how generations think differently and how the world actually does change quite profoundly. I've done a little bit of reading and thinking around the Great Depression and the 1929 market crash when the financial crisis happened. I could see a lot of parallels with the world that existed then. And I just had such high conviction in it. I engaged the team and got them to read up about it and talk about it to the point where they thought that was a pretty interesting project. 
but it was really the process of going through the project, which took a year, which ultimately engaged the entire investment team. So they broke up into work groups, and at that time we had maybe 70 or 80 people. They all worked on the project. We produced probably 30 papers internally and for the board through the whole thing to build views and conviction to the point where we could change the portfolio and people would be on that journey rather than impose it on the top down, which I don't think would have worked. So this concluding paper, you titled The Death of Traditional Portfolio Construction. Why don't you discuss your thesis of that paper? Sure. So finance is really based on observations on how financial markets and economies have worked and ascribes, quote, laws or behaviours to these actors in the economy, assuming that people in the future will act like they have in the past. But when you start to think about it, most of the data we have comes from the era post-World War II, and in many cases, really only the last 30 or 40 years. And so we've been in a particular part of the cycle during that period. We've had demographic and economic tailwinds. We've had the emergence of middle classes in Europe and the US post-World War II. We've had increasing debt in the world, and that was a positive thing mostly because it brought forward consumption and wealth from the future, but we had a fast-growing world, pretty good efficiency, productivity-type effects, globalisation, global trade, mostly economic rationalist government policymakers through a lot of that era. Not solely, there were obviously bumps on the way, but mostly. But actually, when you look back at hundreds of years of history, the world hasn't normally been like that. It's certainly gone through those cycles before. And so the question was, why will it continue? Why should it continue forever? Ultimately, it boils down to is capitalism performing a useful service for society at large? And if it is, it will continue. And if it isn't, then someone sometime will try to intervene in those markets and change it. So taking that backdrop, then you can start to say, well, why should bonds be negatively correlated with equities always? Why should equities earn a higher return than some quite lower risk asset always? Why should private markets earn an illiquidity always? And the answer is, well, on average over time, they probably should because people otherwise shouldn't buy them. But at different points in the cycle, they clearly don't. For example, we've just been through a couple of years of inflation, rising interest rates, falling bonds, falling equities at the same time. And so really, in saying the death of traditional portfolio construction, and my team made me put a question mark on the end of the title because we're really calling for a debate, but I guess I personally think it is. What we're really saying is there might be periods in the future where bonds are still defensive relative to equities and where private markets earn a premium and so forth, but you can't assume it will always be the case. And so there is no set and forget portfolio anymore that you can just put on and then go to sleep or fill up an asset allocation with dollars every year, you have to actually be a lot more dynamic and a lot more thoughtful. So what do you do with that thesis when it comes to the actions to take on your fund? For a very first principles investor, we call it joined up whole portfolio investing. I tend not to use the term total portfolio approach because when other people do that, they do different things to what we do. So right now we think the assets are repricing still as the world works out what should the price of money be in a higher inflation world and a world where there's more competition for capital. 
credit actually looks pretty attractive because it has repriced. So why wouldn't you just put all your portfolio in credit? And there's good reasons why you wouldn't, but that's the starting supposition rather than, oh, we'll have an overweight of some small amount within some tracking error budget to some strategic asset allocation or reference portfolio. When we look at the world going forward, we see more inflation, more volatility, probably wars, at least in localised places more frequently, deglobalisation, and more populist governments that will direct capital, all those things detract from economic growth, all those things are inflationary. And in that world, in the big picture, you would have probably less reliance on equities and you would have less conviction in bonds. And so the question becomes, where do you get your returns from and what can be defensive? And how have you gone about thinking through that? We concluded that we need better inflation protection. There's many, many reasons why we think inflation will be sustained. It doesn't mean it will stay double digits or high single digits. It will come back down, then it will go up again, then it will come back down, then it will go up again. This is the path from history. Certain types of real assets, particularly infrastructure assets that can pass through inflation look quite attractive, but not, for example, regulated utilities, which you might in theory say should be because there needs to be a social contract. If you're buying an essential service, you can't just charge anything you want. You can't put the price through the roof. And so we look at those assets. It's quite risky in this world. But there are other things, mobile phone towers, fibre, data centres, renewable energy infrastructure that are quite attractive. We think commodities are one of the few things that have worked through stagflationary periods and inflationary periods, and we see no reason to think the future will be different. But you've got an added tailwind now that in the decarbonised economy, a lot of commodities become very valuable, not the petroleum ones, but the rare earths, certain types of minerals and metals. And so we've put that exposure on in the portfolio. In 2020, we put gold into the portfolio for the first time because we saw that more populist governments would be more likely to print money or otherwise debase their currencies because that's what governments always do when they're in those sort of situations, or at least you can't take it for granted that they won't. And then we still have very high conviction in skill-based strategies, particularly private equity, venture capital, the sort of infrastructure and property we do and credit we do tends to be private and skill-based. But increasingly, even in equity markets, where some years ago we thought in this macro-driven world, skill-based strategies would struggle to earn their keep over and above their fees, where in certain pockets we've come back to that. And so, for example, we started to great fanfare and interest in Australian equity small cap strategy earlier this year because it was a space where there was capacity available and there is the potential to deliver sustainable alpha. I'm trying to think about how your portfolio would change with this different lens of a paradigm after this year of work. You started with an approach that's a little bit different from traditional asset allocation as it was anyway. How much can you change such a large pool, even over two or three years, to move into the areas that you think are more likely to benefit from a different environment? So we manage about $265 billion Aussie across seven funds. The future fund, which is the higher risk fund, is a bit over 200 and we've changed half of it in the last three years. So it is something we have conviction in. 
Some of it isn't obvious if you just look at the asset allocation because it says equities, we've still got equities, but we've got different types of equities now than we used to. Some of it is things that don't really show up in the asset allocation. We think we need to be more careful about our liquidity. We think there's going to be more volatility in currency. We think there's options in unlisted assets that can get us higher returns in lower growth world, but other issues come with that. So we've built an internal treasury management function, for example, to work the liquidity harder. We're taking some of the risk using derivatives over the cash that we have. So we're being more disciplined about how we think about that. But other things are quite different. So the nature of the type of infrastructure we're buying is different. The way we're doing real estate is different. We don't think set and forget trophy assets are that exciting because there's no reason to think that you'll just get rewarded for having capital. And so you need to have strategies that actually create something of worth that people want to pay for. And the issues in terms of office building utilisation or shopping centres versus internet retail, for example, are well known and explored. But the same things are happening right across the ecosystem. So it's more inside each asset allocation, how we execute on the portfolios that is changing. This idea that credit looks interesting, couldn't you just put all your money in credit? Well, you can't do that. Oh, this infrastructure is interesting, but it's a liquid. How do you get to the sizing of all these different buckets of opportunities? Well, firstly, I'd say we can put all our money in credit. That's a decision not to. And the reason we don't is because we might not be right. Or maybe the market capacity and the size of the fund over the time period would restrict it. But we wouldn't start from the attitude that we can't. And so most of the conversations around the investment committee are, we like this idea, why can't we do more? Usually the investment committee is pushing the sector team to do more of a good idea rather than less. And that's what the whole portfolio investing really comes to. It's sizing issues at the whole portfolio level appropriately. But of course, we do have an existing portfolio and we can only have one portfolio. And so there are multiple future scenarios in the world. No portfolio will be great in all the scenarios. We could have a low growth stagflation. We could have a productivity shock where everything's fine. We could have anything in between. We could have geopolitical conflict that means that certain geographies get impacted more than others. And so we do think about true diversity in the portfolio. I don't use the word diversification because we don't assume asset classes behave differently in a particular way. We try to look through that in a more granular way to say, well, these subsets, let's say, of real estate in these geographies will behave this way, but some other type of real estate will behave differently. And then we try to run it through forward-looking scenarios. And so really our job becomes to take returns in a really good scenario and see if we can shift them to less positive scenarios, for example, either through a different asset allocation or through using option strategies or other things like that. In a world where you're expecting there to be more volatility across whatever these factors are, inflation, equities, bonds, how do you dial up or down the investments you make in the dynamic asset allocation portion of what you do? There's a few different lenses on it. Probably the more important one is that we talk to each other a lot. So we talk about joined up whole portfolio investing. The joined up piece is our teams are talking to each other all the time about what they like, what they don't like, what they're seeing in the portfolio, what they think is attractive. We try to learn off each other and our fund managers, of course. If we see something that's attractive, we'd work together on it. So 
Right now, real estate credit, for example, looks pretty interesting. There's a shortage of capital, and so our real estate teams and our credit teams are working together on that. So there's that piece. And then we have a more formulaic, more traditional dynamic asset allocation piece as well. And this is something that has changed since the work we did because we think the world is more volatile and we think it's worth investing more in capturing the benefits of the volatility because we have a longer term mindset. We don't mind if we lose money over the short term or if we are running tracking errors to some sort of benchmark. And so we can take a longer term view about whether there's fundamental value in something and take a position. And so we have built a dynamic asset allocation team that's doing that now across equities, different types of currency and interest rates, and they can move intraday if necessary, but usually less frequently than that. It's really just based on fundamental longer-term value plus a few other metrics about the shorter-term macro cycle. And that's proving to add quite a lot of value. We've always done that, but we've ramped it up. And so we try to analyse our own performance. We pretty much start with if we just had equities and cash, nothing else, and we ran our typical risk level, what would the return have been? And then we think we can diversify the portfolio, we can hopefully get some alpha, and we can be dynamic. When we break down the returns over the life of the fund, 18 years now, we've added about 2.5% per annum, which we think is pretty good. And it's actually split, interestingly, only about a half a percent to diversification in the traditional sense and about 1% each in dynamic asset allocation and alpha. But if you look over the last three years, actually diversification has been significantly negative because obviously bonds and equities have been correlated in a bad way, but alpha has been really, really strong. You mentioned that to make a significant change in the portfolio like that, you had to get the organization prepared to be able to make change because people are used to just doing what they've done and incrementally moving forward. How did you get the organization to change? So first I'd say I'm lucky because we didn't have to change from the opposite. We didn't have to fundamentally change. We just had to lean into the culture we'd already built and do more of it with an open mind. But we also had to do it with more people. Because we decided in this more complex world, we needed more people to do more strategies, to have more managers, to make more investments, to support those investments, and of course, to support the more people. Another part of the process was bringing the board along. It really has to start with the board, because if the board said, here's your reference portfolio, here's your tracking error budget, it just wouldn't work. All those conversations we were having as we went through this year of research, we were also having with the board. And when we ultimately got to the recommendation on how to change the portfolio, the board was right there with us. So you build confidence and it's not always the way, but thankfully those decisions have added value to the portfolio since then. And so that helps you have higher conviction in doing even more. And actually last year when we went to the board, we put up a recommendation and then we put up another proposal, which we called Be Bolder, which really meant double down into our conviction about the changes in the world and the board actually said, mm, don't think so. We don't have that higher conviction that we're right and that's important too. And so it's quite qualitative. We know if we're adding value or not post-fact, but we just have to back each other to have insight, to test it, to be open about it, to take feedback and to pivot as you go. How bold did Be Bolder look like? 
It really went hard into commodities. It went hard into hedge funds, which we think can be defensives and types of hedge fund strategies in this world. As you would know, Ted, conviction in hedge funds doesn't always pay off, so you want to be (laughs) careful about that. But really, it just did more of what we're already doing in terms of sizing. I seem to remember it was something like about high single digits of the portfolio moving out of traditional assets into these ideas, which we've already done quite a lot of, but another percent of the portfolio doing that. In your seat as CEO, I'm curious how you thought about culture. Culture is very fundamental, I think. And a lot of what I've been describing, you couldn't do without a culture to support the innovation and the risk-taking and the being different. I think, again, the future funds had that since it was established, but we were really small and young and we sort of grew it as we went and we got bigger. And as we went into the COVID period, part of the strategy was we need to grow the investment team by about 60% because we need more strategies, we need to be more granular, we need to be more active with our fund managers to bring the information together. I was convinced by logic, but I was really concerned about the culture of the organisation if we did that, about the fact that you need more people to manage more people, whether it's in HR people and culture type teams or legal and finance and other execution teams. At the same time, we were uplifting our data and technology capability to support the investment decisions and understand what was in the portfolio. And we just couldn't buy it off the shelf, what we wanted. So our technology team, I think, quintupled over the period of four or five years. There were lots of challenges in managing that growth in terms of having an aligned investment-focused culture and also in ensuring that our people who were becoming leaders, especially in the middle of the organisation, understood what their role would be and what their obligation is. And so I was very focused on ensuring that we continued to offer quality support for ultimately the investment mission, which is why we're here. And that meant listening to the organisation about what wasn't working and fixing it. Technology being a good example that we couldn't afford to have a technology team that could do lots of things and have lots of ideas, but wasn't being driven by the investment need explicitly. As a CEO, I felt like my job was to ensure the whole organisation was wrapping itself around this really significant change in the investment world and the change we had to do in the portfolio and our mindset and supporting it. That goes to the risk team and how they think that goes, I already mentioned, to treasury management. It goes to how all our enablement functions are working and it ultimately goes to how we innovate. I decided that in order to grow successfully, we had to codify the culture. And I'm a little allergic to that. And my predecessor, Dave Neal, I think was highly allergic to that (laughs) because he felt it had to be more dynamic. But if we were growing from something like 150 people in five years to 350, then I just felt like it was too risky not to do that. So I took a summer and thought very hard about it and wrote down what I thought the culture was in two phrases and four actions. I was later corrected by my colleagues to five actions. I gave a speech on it to the organisation. It was really not about you must join our cult and act this way when you're here, but it was more about this is what guides us, this is why we're different to somewhere else. It's largely about working together and collaborating with each other with a joint focus. 
now when people join the organisation, they get a copy of that and we talk about what you need to do to be successful at the Future Fund. What were those two phrases? So the first one was one team, one purpose, which we'd had for a long time. And that really came out of an investment context. We used to say one team, one portfolio, but now that we manage seven funds for the government, that didn't really work anymore. But it was really about aligned objectives. The second one built off that. I'd continually repeat it even to this day, investment performance is our focus. We have to know why we exist and every decision that anyone in the organisation makes needs to come back to that. How will you help investment performance? And I was quite influenced by Sam Walton's famous quote about Walmart when he said, well, if you don't serve the customer or you're not helping someone who serves the customer, we don't have a job for you. And I think we're a bit the same when it comes to investment performance. So we're not here to build a big technology team that's shiny and does wonderful things unless it helps investment performance. But I think we can think about the risk functions, the transaction functions, the people and culture piece through the same lens, one step removed. How are you helping us get better at investing? So they were the two phrases. And then the four original actions, which I tried to make rhyme just so people would remember them, were collaborate facilitate, innovate, and deliberate, which goes to working together, trying to solve the investment problem at the whole portfolio level. Facilitate really means don't wait to be asked, go and offer. And if you've got some knowledge, some connections, some resource in your team that you can offer, or some capital in the portfolio, because some other idea is better than yours, then go and offer. Innovate, I think a lot of people have, but I talked a lot about looking at the quality of the decision we made at the point of the decision, something you've explored on your podcast, and not judging people by the outcome because there's too much uncertainty in the world when you're an investor to know if we're good at decision-making just by a few decisions a year and what the outcome was. And that's really encouraging people to be bold and you can hear the outcome of that through the new investment order work we did. Deliberate is about reputation risk management, where the government's fund but also in our view of the future, more populist governments are likely to be sustained around the world and society is expecting more and more from its institutions and we're no different. So we need to be very thoughtful about things that are appropriate for us to do and talk openly about that. And then it seemed implicit to me that in that world where we were collaborating and working together that we would get a whole diverse range of people into the organisation and value their views And so I wasn't explicit about that, but my colleagues corrected me and said, well, if you want to achieve that, you better be explicit about it. So we've added inclusion, which I think is really important. It doesn't rhyme, but that's okay. (laughs) And we talk a lot about that internally. We've set up the Future Fund Academy, which is only small, but we're only a few hundred people. They're helping teach a whole lot of things from leadership through to how to pick a good fund manager. But most importantly, on your first day in the organisation, you come to an induction program for that day and the whole first half of the day is on our culture. They've had a copy of my speech and we talk about why are we different? What do you think that will do in terms of your decision making, no matter what role you're in? And people are able to say they think it's a good idea or they might say, we're not sure about this. We question if we think it's going to be valuable and we don't mind that either. I go to meet as many people as I can if I'm around and it just helps people feel connected to the organisation but also understand that they're joining a place that is clear. You mentioned at the beginning the book we did on the 15-year history of the fund. I felt that was really important, not just to mark 
an important occasion and a creation of a new institution for Australia, but also because really the audience for me was future staff. I want people to know they're joining an organisation that's existed and has some runs on the board, which can be a bit scary for people as well, but then say it's okay to offer change, to offer new ideas. But one day when you leave and everyone leaves eventually, the organisation will continue as well. I think that's important. So everyone gets a copy of that book as well. I'd love to probe a little more on some of these principles. And it sounds intuitive to say investment performance is what you're driving towards. What are some of the ways that having that as one of the core missions focuses activities in a way that hadn't been taking place before? Some obvious ones would be around risk and legal functions and how they apply their lens. So it's not just to stop us doing risky things, but to know that it's okay to do risky things as long as it drives better returns and as long as we're open-minded and clear-eyed about that. But a more subtle one would be how our people at culture and inclusion function is working with our senior investors to build trust between them to support their soft skills of challenging each other without becoming defensive. And we think that to continue to thrive and succeed in this more complex world, we have to get even better at whole portfolio joined up investing. And a key plank is how senior investors, in fact, all our investors engage with each other and challenge. And to do that, you need to have trust. You need to have a framework so that you understand the rules and not be personal. We're not bad at that, but we're not great at that because we're people. So we need to keep working at that. And so our team is building all sorts of supports from how we hire, how we sponsor people, who we promote, the sort of conversations we have about the behaviours we reward or we penalise. When we fill senior roles, we'll often try to do that internally, but what attributes are we looking for? So it really gets embedded all the way through the organisation. And then we can apply those same things to the other parts of the organisation, not just the investment team. That's probably what's coming next on our agenda. We're really trying to create the structure and the struts for the organisation as a whole to support the culture and the culture's focused on delivering investment performance. What have been some of your biggest challenges in your time in the CEO seat? Well, there's the basic CEO problem of every day, which is that everyone you speak to has a view on something, but usually they're completely different to each other and everyone wants (laughs) to give you advice. And one thing you learn is to not jump to conclusions or make quick decisions on those type of things, but to take the time to talk to a range of people and get a range of views and understand why it is. As I said, I became the CEO in the middle of 2020 in a lockdown, so that was quite challenging. And just to engage the organisation, the purpose helped. Obviously, we work for the Australian taxpayer. We don't just invest the Future Fund, which helps strengthen the Commonwealth Government's balance sheet and help to support the economy through COVID, but we also manage the Medical Research Future Fund that funds about a third of medical research in Australia, and then a whole bunch of other funds that go to support drought and emergency relief social affordable housing in the Indigenous community. So the purpose piece wasn't hard, but for me it was a new skill to talk to a whole organisation about that in a health crisis when we were locked in our homes in Melbourne for 262 days. That was pretty testing for an introverted, somewhat logical investment person. But I suppose you just do what you have to do. 
I think as a CEO, the other big challenge for me has been to engage the organisation and particularly the senior leaders around the strategy, where we want to go, how we want to get better. Getting better together is hard because you're changing things that you've done for a period of time. And so I have found that quite challenging to keep the focus, keep the alignment, keep everyone engaged in a positive way with momentum, but it's going quite well. What have you learned post-COVID as you're able to travel around and meet other people in similar senior leadership roles? Everyone has the same sort of issues. I think they change a little bit depending on your stakeholders, most importantly, and your governance models, but mostly everyone has the same issues. And so I find that speaking to my peers is the best way to learn because some of their organisations have been around a lot longer than ours and they've confronted most of those issues before. Fortunately or otherwise, when you're an asset owner, most people you speak to either work for you and so it's always hard to know if they're really telling you what they think or want a mandate off you. And so usually they agree with you wholeheartedly. I'm always (laughs) very sceptical about that. So peers are the best way to learn. No organisation's exactly the same, but there's great things that you can learn from others and adopt for yourself. What are some of those big lessons that you've learned from others? So for example, as we've got bigger, as I said before, we've set up the Future Fund Academy to help train people. And I was fortunate to be able to do some research and talk to some of our peers, BlackRock, Goldman's, GIC, has GIC School. A lot of organisations have well-developed learning academies that do a great job, and they've all been very generous with access and insight about what works and what doesn't work. What have you found does work and doesn't from those? So actually, someone said to me when we first started, you have to decide, will it sit reporting directly to you as CEO, or will it report through the people and culture function or through some other part of the organisation, because that's important. If it doesn't come from the top people won't do it or they'll see it as a distraction or a waste of their time. But also it needs to be demand-driven from the organisation. So there's no point in imposing things on the organisation if it doesn't value those things. So we're trying to get that model right. I don't have it reporting to me because I thought it was important to integrate with our other processes around engaging, sponsoring, developing people. That seems to be going fine, but I take a pretty close interest in it, including sitting on the steering committee and having input into the syllabus. It needs to be bottom up and we need the investment people and the people in the other parts of the organisation to be saying, I need help with this particular set of skills in my team. And if there's enough demand, we can try to develop some content around it. So it's kind of astounding that this significant pool of capital has only been around for 15 years. As you wrote this 15-year letter, I'd love to hear your impressions of the perspective you have from this period of time. So I joined probably a bit over a year after the Future Fund was established, and I was one of the first people into the investment team, but it had been going, it had established its culture, at least in principle, and it had started investing even if just in index equities. I'd never really thought of myself as one of the founders, therefore. I thought of myself as someone who came along pretty quickly thereafter and was part of the team that built out the original ideas. I'm grateful for that because if I was there at the time, then it just seems like another day at the office. You have to make 30 decisions today. One of them was 
what sort of approach should we have? And it just gets lost in the midst of the decision making. But I was able to come in and say, actually, that's a bit different. It's a bit special and it's helped us be who we are and then reinforce it as a builder. And so I really wanted to capture the things that are different. I think the two things really that have allowed us to be successful, if we have been, and I'll let others judge that. One, the governance model. So we have a board appointed by government, but the board are all industry experts. They're not a lay board. They can engage in quite a sophisticated way and they've always been aligned and supportive, but they've always been close. And by that, I mean, we have monthly board meetings and we don't have some quantitative reference portfolio approach to measuring our success. We have much more qualitative debates and discussions, and that allows us to do things that would be considered quite risky in other frameworks. So governance and the other one is culture, and I've already spoken quite a lot about that. But I think that culture allows us to understand the world and act on it. And I think most funds understand the world at some level. Most of the things we think about the world are not secrets. Plenty of people are debating the same issues. It really boils down to are you willing to act on that? And how far are you willing to move off the back of that? And mostly that's not the capability of the people. It's the governance model. How do you feel about being effectively responsible for pivoting the organization to make those important decisions when you're not as close to the investment markets as you were? I feel pretty good about it. And that's because I'm not trying to make investment decisions anymore. I think it's important to remember that the team that is close to markets are the ones that have to make the decisions. My job is to make sure that we've got a culture that's agreed and clear, make sure that the team's putting in place clear investment processes and strategies and they make sense. There's enough checks and balances, but not too many to seize the pipes up so that we can't actually act quickly and then make sure that the whole rest of the organisation is supporting And I quite like that job, actually. I've probably done the investment job for long enough that I've got the perspective and I don't need to make the day-to-day decisions. I just want to make sure that the infrastructure's there and the culture's right and the people are right. So as you're looking at over the next couple of years, what are the most important initiatives you're working on? The first one is just maintaining that flexible way of thinking and culture because the world will keep changing and we can't predict what will happen. In the next five years, we might have a hot war. We might have a Cold War, we might have a cyber war, but even if we park that, we'll certainly have major political change in a lot of important places in the world. Next year, the US election, I think it's very hard for anyone to predict which way that will go, but it seems quite clear that whoever wins might make some changes to how policy is made and where the US sits in the world economically. We've got new technologies emerging, AI potentially new energy forms, not just renewables, but nuclear fusions coming along, quantum computers coming along. So it's very, very hard to predict what's going to happen. And that's quite exciting for an investor because what we need to do is make sure we stay elastic, flexible, nimble in our thinking, and also that we have the portfolio approach and the governance model to allow us to act on it. That's really the biggest challenge. To do that in a joined up whole portfolio way, we need much better um, data about what's in the portfolio. And so we've spent more than a half a dozen years now building a system that can look into the portfolio, look through the private funds to understand the underlying assets that we can ascribe 
our own information onto any assets that we own in terms of what currency it is, what duration it is, how risky it is, and that we can aggregate that and poll the portfolio in real time so we know exactly what we own. And then we can do all sorts of interesting things with that in terms of analytics, scenario testing, looking forward and also analysing the performance of individual positions or managers. So we've got all that now, which is amazing. Now we can test what to do with it. We have all our data. We're sure that it's clean. So something like AI coming along, we've got a little team working on what could we use this for? How could it help us? And there's lots of exciting other things that are emerging. And so we need to keep enough bandwidth to make sure we continue to get better at what we do every day as well. I'd love to ask, throughout your career as you encounter money managers, peers, you always learn lots of lessons along the way. I wonder if you could pick out a few people that you've learned some key lessons from. I think the best investors are open-minded. There's a lot of people, and I find this right across the universe, public and private markets, that have done something in a particular way. It's worked in the past. They assume they just have to keep making that sausage and the future will look like the past. I think that's fraught. I think the people you can learn of are the people who are open-minded, who try to understand the changes in the world. If you're a money manager, try to understand what your clients want or need or what problem are they trying to solve and try to invent new ways of solving that that fit the world. I won't name them because I think that's not appropriate, but there's quite a few people like that I enjoy talking to. I have a couple of closing questions for you that are different from the ones from five years ago. What is one fact that most people don't know about you? I'm quite fanatical about Disney theme parks, actually, (laughs) and I enjoy going sometimes on my own. At times, you pick things up that do influence how I think about work as well. What are some of those that you've picked up? I think they're great at imbuing culture through their organisation, and so I started to investigate this, and they actually have a thing called the Disney University, and they do this culture induction on the first day, and I've been fortunate enough to meet with them and shamelessly copy quite a bit of what they do. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Everyone has sponsors, and sometimes you don't know that you do. But in my career, I've been fortunate enough a few times. So when I was an engineer originally, and then I went to academia, and a person called Mike Fitzpatrick, who ran a unlisted infrastructure boutique in Australia backed me to come in and learn how to invest really, taught me how to invest. It worked out okay, but it wasn't clear it was going to be. He really had faith in me. And then when I came to the Future Fund, I think David Neal was the same. And when he became CEO, he gave me the opportunity to become the Chief Investment Officer and it wasn't something I'd done before. And he really backed me to step into that role. I think you need people like that in your career. All right, Raph, one more. What was the best advice you've ever received? On my very first day of work as an engineer in Australia in the early 90s, there was a quite a big recession and I walked into my job and 30 people got made redundant on my floor that day. And someone said to me, don't take a job for granted, just put your head down and work hard. And I've never forgotten that. Raph, thanks so much for sharing your perspective on this important inflection point in the markets in the world. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. To learn more, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can join our mailing list, access past shows, learn about our gatherings, and sign up for premium content, including podcast transcripts, my investment portfolio, and a lot more. Have a good one.
and see you next time. 